Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 166 for October 25th, 2009. It's finally time. This is the week that Microsoft began to wipe Vista from our collective memories. I have grumbled a lot about the price. I have grumbled considerably about the confusing array of versions, particularly when you compare those to Apple's single version, $30 upgrade if you have OS X. But I have not grumbled about the functionality of Windows 7, at least not the ultimate version, and that's because it is a remarkably clean initial release. Despite the relatively high price of the upgrade, I have to recommend it for anybody who's using Vista. On the other hand, if you're still running XP, there's really no compelling reason to upgrade until you replace your current computer. XP was an operating system in the style of Windows 2000, solid and reliable. Vista was everything no operating system should ever be. Buggy, slow, hard to use, crash prone, and often unable to get out of its own way. Windows 7 resolves all of those issues. Undoubtedly hundreds, if not thousands of known bugs remain. They are largely minor annoyances. Startup and shutdown times are far faster under Vista and, in most cases, faster even than under XP. Applications start faster than under Vista and sometimes faster than they started under XP. I have yet to see a Windows 7 crash in either the commercial code I've been running for several weeks or in the release candidate code that I ran for several months. And when I say crash, I mean an operating system crash, not crashes of individual programs. Those, of course, occur, but infrequently. And the user access controls have been modified so that Windows 7 doesn't get in its own way. Over the past five months, I have written a total of nine reports about Windows 7. You'll find links to the entire section of reports on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. You'll find complaints about the pricing and the marketing of the new operating system, but you won't find many complaints about how Windows 7 works. You may not need the upgrade today, next week, or even this year, but the next computer you buy, if it runs Windows, will come with Windows 7. And this is a change you need not fear. Speaking of change, Adobe is working on the next version of Lightroom 3. And about a week ago, I got a sneak peek at what they're doing. Having been lulled into complacency by the initial release of Adobe Lightroom, when I reviewed Adobe Lightroom 2 in October of 2008, I really didn't expect very much. At that time, I wrote, The interface is clean and logical, but hardly what I would call intuitive, simply because Lightroom can do so much. When I first started looking at Lightroom version 1, I didn't think much of it because it seemed not to do much. What a difference between version 1, which didn't do very much, and version 2, which did an enormous amount. Lightroom 2 turned out to be one of my favorite applications, and I mention that now because Adobe is working on the next version, and they've just made a beta available. It's one you can download for free and give it a try. The beta period is likely to be approximately a year. You'll find a link to download the beta version from the TechBiter Worldwide website. 
Adobe says it will be a long beta, and by that I mean the final product may not ship for close to a year. Adobe is committed to shipping Lightroom in 2010, but has not committed to a more specific date. So as long as they get it out the door by December 31st, they have met their goal. Senior product manager Tom Hogarty says that's because the company wants to get a lot of feedback from users. Tom showed off the new version and described some of the coming changes. Performance and stability are going to be key. Lightroom 2 is stable and relatively quick, but Lightroom 3 is being refactored so the code will be faster for the interactive functions. This may come, though, at the expense of slower, non-interactive functions. But the change makes a lot of sense. Interactive functions, those are the ones that, oh, say, for example, changing the color balance or the exposure of an image. You want this to happen quickly because you want to see the change as soon as you make it. The user wants an immediate response there, and that's what Adobe is aiming for. On the other hand, if you're exporting 100 high-definition RAW files to JPEG, that's a non-interactive operation. If the process takes 23 minutes instead of 18 minutes, well, the user probably isn't going to be too concerned because in either case, you're not going to sit there and watch it happen. You're going to do something else. Among the changes we'll see in Lightroom 3 are these. Number one, far better noise reduction. This is particularly important when users shoot at high ISO speeds. The higher the speed, the more noise there's going to be. That's just a function of the way these things work. Two types of noise exist, color and luminance. Adobe already has color luminance pretty much pegged, and that's included in the current beta. They are still working on luminance noise. That correction will be added later. But just what they've got so far, just the color noise, makes a remarkable difference. Sharpening has been improved. All digital images are slightly soft, but most sharpening algorithms to date create kind of an artificial or what photographers call crunchy appearance to the image. That's an ugly appearance. That's gone in Lightroom 3. Adding music to slideshow presentations is easy in Lightroom 3. And Lightroom 3 will be able to calculate display times and dissolve times so that if you want it to happen, the images will end precisely when the music does. Functions have been added to allow easy uploading to online sites such as SmugMug and Flickr. This includes a round-trip function that allows comments to be posted to the website, then downloaded so the user can reply to the comments in Lightroom 3 and have them uploaded automatically to the site. That's pretty impressive. And they've improved the output, either web, print, or slideshow, all improved. Output supports video formats from those used for handheld devices all the way up to those used for high-definition television. What I find amazing about this list of improvements is that they are not being discussed in a late beta. Hogarty was showing what he characterized as a very early beta. In some cases, a feature might currently have multiple options, but the goal, by the time they finish the beta process, is to remove the options. They want those to be narrowed down to a single function by the time the application ships. The options are in the beta because the developers want some feedback from users with regard to which of the options works better. Lightroom is considered to be a tool for professionals and serious amateurs who are unwilling to compromise on image quality. This is one of the reasons why there is such a strong emphasis on image quality and application reliability. 
Adobe works pretty well, it seems, with long-term goals. The corporate culture seems to be one of patience and acceptance. Both managers and developers understand that creating quality software is an iterative process, and they welcome comments from people who use the applications. Adobe released its first Camera Raw application in 2003. I don't know how many Camera Raw formats were supported in those days, but Adobe Camera Raw now supports more than 250 camera models. The first Lightroom beta was released in January of 2006. The current version of Lightroom 2 is actually the 17th release of that application. That counts intermediate betas and updates to existing programs. So Lightroom 3, this really gives me something to look forward to in 2010. This week, I did something I have never done before. Two things, actually. First, I went to a computer store on the very day a new operating system was released, even though I had already been using it for several months. And second, I bought a near-bottom-of-the-line notebook computer. Maybe you'll enjoy the rest of the story. If not, just skip on to the next piece. Although I buy most of my computers from TCR, I needed a very basic notebook to replace the notebook my wife uses. TCR doesn't have anything that quite fit what she needed. She needs to collect email and do other tasks that don't require a lot of computer horsepower. So you might be thinking, netbook. Well, the machine she's been using is at least six years old, clearly nearing its end of life, and she wanted something with a screen as large as that computer. 15 inches, and it had to be capable of connecting wirelessly to the Internet, running a couple of different email programs, and running a web browser. Again, netbooks, the little atom power devices, cute, cheap, they would have largely performed all of the necessary tasks, but the screens were too small to be acceptable. So what I ended up with is an e-machine that has a 1.6 gigahertz single-core processor that makes it just slightly faster than the $2,000 machine it replaced, 2 gigabytes of RAM, and a 160-gigabyte hard drive. I brought it home and was pleasantly surprised at the lack of cramware. I was able to kill the Norton advertisement and uninstall the application. Then I used the built-in recovery disk generator to burn DVDs with the operating system and applications on them. As with most manufacturers these days, you don't get a disk with the e-machine, so you need to make your own. And it's good to spend an hour or so that you'll need to do that, creating those disks. So within a couple of hours, I had set up the computer, installed the two email programs we needed, turned off Internet Explorer, installed Firefox, and run a few updates. And how much did I pay for this? $300. For a $300 computer, it works remarkably well. And by the way, it came with Windows 7, Home Premium. I still recommend Windows 7 Ultimate, and I may eventually install Windows 7 Ultimate on this machine. But Home Premium really does about everything it needs to do on that computer. Still, if you can afford it, you'll be better off in the long term with the full Ultimate version. Somewhere in the vicinity of every silver cloud, there is some rain. Starting earlier this week, I began to notice a lot of Microsoft update messages in my email box. Needless to say, any such message is fraudulent because Microsoft never, ever sends messages with attachments to users, and Microsoft never, ever sends announcements of updates or security patches by email. If you receive one, just do yourself a favor and discard it. Here's the one I received. It claimed to come from the Microsoft Update Center, No reply at Microsoft.com. 
Okay, that's the from line for the sender. Extremely easy to forge. Subject line, Microsoft Outlook Critical Update. The message says, update for Microsoft Outlook, Outlook Express, knowledge base 910721. And I suspect that's actually a fake. KB910721. Let's see what we get. Fake Microsoft Security Alert. Beware, 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 beware. Fake critical malware spam. Hmm. So, yeah, it's definitely a fake, which I knew anyway. But there's additional proof. Here's what the message says. Microsoft has released an update for Microsoft Outlook, Outlook Express. Pretty unlikely, because Outlook and Outlook Express share little or no code. They were developed by two totally different teams at Microsoft. The message goes on. This update is critical and provides you with the latest version of the Microsoft Outlook, Outlook Express, and offers the highest level of security and stability. Instructions. To install, update for Microsoft Outlook, Outlook Express, KB910721, please visit Microsoft Update Center. Then it gives me a URL, updatemicrosoft.com. Now, don't get too far ahead of me here. Updatemicrosoft.com actually belongs to Microsoft. The message provides some quick details. It tells me what the file name is going to be. It tells me what the version is. It tells me the fake publication date. It tells me it's in English. It tells me it's 100 kilobytes. Says that it supports Windows 2000, 98, Windows ME, Windows NT, Windows Server 2003, Windows XP, and Windows Vista. And it says that it applies to Microsoft Outlook and Outlook Express, which again I have to point out is nonsense because they're two different code bases. So the message says it wants me to visit updatemicrosoft.com, but what is the real URL lurking beneath what looks like a legitimate link? The real destination is update.microsoft.com.easder1e.co.uk. Hmm. Needless to say, easder1e.co.uk is not owned by Microsoft. Instead, it is registered as being owned by a Patricia Laycock of 12 Low Eggborough Road, number Google, I think they were trying to spell Google there and missed, DN140PJ. That does not look like a United Kingdom postal code, but what the heck. I included the full URL on the TechBiter Worldwide website because it's rather like a swine flu immunization. The dangerous parts are dead. The site is no longer alive, having had its entry removed from DNS tables worldwide. The only change in what you see on the website was to remove my email address from the plain text section. In short circuits, it is not all Windows all the time. On the same day that Microsoft started officially selling Windows 7, Canonical released the Ubuntu 9.10 release candidate. Ubuntu's numbering system is odd. The first part of the number indicates the year, and the second part of the number indicates the month. So 9 would be 2009, and 10 is October. Canonical also gives each version a name. This one is called Karmic Koala. Karmic being spelled with a K. The new version will be released this coming week on October 29th. I haven't downloaded it yet, but I probably will allow my Linux machines to update themselves to the latest version when it's released officially. The operating system market is becoming a little bit crowded these days. Windows remains the champion, no question. Linux, which is free and quite robust, appeals to a lot of people, though. And Apple's OS X, 
which is considerably less expensive than Windows and quite robust, appeals to a lot of people. Google is working on an operating system that is based on the Chrome browser. It will probably appeal to a lot of people. The current version of Ubuntu Linux is 9.04. It's called Jaunty Jackalope. So here's kind of a drag racing comparison. Compared to Vista, Windows 7 boots and shuts down much faster. Compared to boot and shutdown times for Ubuntu, though, Windows 7 is a laggard. But if you depend on Windows-based programs, Windows is still the best operating system to run them. There is another selling point, by the way. Canonical offers up to 2 gigabytes of online storage and file sharing service for free through a service called Ubuntu One. Users can rent additional space at the rate of $10 per month per 50 gigabytes of space. Here's another quick look at Windows 7, or actually a look at what's going to happen with Windows 7 between, oh, say, now and January. Windows 7 is officially on the market. With few exceptions, any computer you buy now that runs Windows will be running some version of Windows 7. Yes, there are still a few places where you can get XP. But sales of Windows machines have been off for the past couple of years, partly because of Vista, partly because of the economy. With economists saying that the economy is improving and a much better version of Windows now available, computer resellers are hoping for a turnaround. Yes, there is Apple's operating system. Yes, there are lots of variants of Linux. But Windows still runs about 90% of all desktop and notebook computers. Anybody who compares Windows 7 to either Vista or XP is going to be pleased. Well, anybody but Steve Jobs, maybe. Windows 7 is a lot faster than Vista, works with most hardware, something Vista had trouble doing, and manages to stay out of its own way. It also looks a lot better. Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer says Windows 7 makes computers more interesting, simpler, faster, and easier to use. And Microsoft this week opened its first Microsoft store in Scottsdale, Arizona? Wouldn't you do that in New York or Los Angeles or London, Chicago? Scottsdale, Arizona? Hmm. So regarding Windows 7, the only thing Microsoft really got wrong was, and you've heard this from me a number of times, the price. Home premium, which is probably what most people will buy, is still $200, $120 for an upgrade. The holiday season is coming. It is typically a time that sees computer sales rise. It'll be interesting to see what happens this year. The Federal Communications Commission is preparing to hold hearings on draft rules to preserve the free and open Internet. The agency has issued a call for interested parties to file comments. If you'd like to file a comment, you need to visit the Commission's electronic comment filing system, and you need to do that before January 14, 2010. Replies to any comments left there must be registered on or before March 5, 2010. You'll find a link to the electronic comment filing system on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The Commission's news release announcing the call for comment says the Commission recognizes that the proposed framework needs to balance potentially competing interests while helping to ensure an open, safe, and secure Internet. The draft rules, they say, would permit broadband Internet access service providers to engage in reasonable network management, including but not limited to reasonable practices to reduce or mitigate the effects of network congestion. It's what's called net neutrality. 
In any event, if you'd like to comment, you can visit the FCC's website. You'll find a link from the TankBiter Worldwide website, www.tankbiter.com. Thanks for listening to TankBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.